Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to Australia on this day. My name's Michael Adams and today we're going back to Saturday the 1st of September 1934. That was the day the first day of spring, that a young man made a discovery in the New South Wales Riverina region that has mystified and horrified Australians ever since. At nine in the morning on Saturday the 1st of September, 23-year-old Tom Griffith was on the Howlong Road about four miles north of Albury. He was leading one of his parents' prized bulls back from the Holbrook Show. They were walking on the grassy shoulder to allow the beast to graze. The Griffith family property, Delaware Station, was by now in sight. Just another 400 yards or so and Tom would be home. That's when he saw something that stopped him in his tracks. Sticking out of a culvert was a human body. Head and shoulders, that's all he could see. The lower half of the corpse was in a sack and this bag, part of the body and the culvert itself had been scorched by flames. Someone had dumped a dead person here and then tried to incinerate the remains. Tom raced to his home and called the Aubrey police. Arriving at the scene, local officers removed the corpse from the sack. The body was that of a woman in her 20s. Her head had been battered and her skull was fractured. She'd been bent feet first into a potato sack and stuffed half into the culvert. The bag had been soaked in kerosene or petrol and set alight. Her upper body was still wearing the distinctive clothing she'd had on when she died. Oriental-style white pyjamas bordered in yellow. In the coming days, police would interview a man who, driving past during a rainstorm, remembered seeing the glow of a fire around 2.30am the previous Wednesday. From this, police established that the girl had been murdered late Tuesday night somewhere else and then been dumped and burned, with the storm putting out the flames before she was fully consumed. The girl had severe head wounds, one in the forehead, the other in the back of the skull. One of her eyes had also been destroyed. Police believed she'd been hit with a heavy object, perhaps a hammer or a piece of timber. As for the other disfiguring wound, what the police would soon learn from an x-ray was that the girl had been shot through the eye and the bullet had lodged in her neck. Thing was, police didn't release the information about the bullet in the eye in order to screen out any crank confessions. Despite the terrible injuries she'd suffered and the efforts to destroy the body, the girl's face was relatively intact, and it was a face that Australians would come to know. That Saturday evening, Melbourne's Herald newspaper ran the front page story. Headline, Charred Body of Girl, Grim Find in Culvert, Pyjama Clad. The article included this description. Aged about 20, height 5 foot 3 inches, fair complexion, light brown bobbed hair, light blue or grey eye, penciled eyebrows, good natural teeth with no noticeable fillings, clad in white pyjamas bordered in yellow. The newspaper reported the dead girl's fingerprints were being compared to those kept on file by Sydney and Melbourne police. Truth newspaper reporter was on the scene to interview Tom Griffith. He told them, quote, I was travelling the animal slowly along the side of the Corowa Road. I'd reached a point about four and a half miles from our homestead when my horse exhibited signs of fear. It appeared to sense some danger. 
At about the same time, I caught sight of something that horrified me. From a shallow culvert were protruding parts of the body of a human being. I went closer, saw the situation in a glance, and hurried home and telephoned the police. Local officers scoured the area around the culvert for clues and interviewed people throughout the district to see if anyone remembered seeing a car on this stretch of the road in the past few days. They also began chasing up reports of missing girls from the area to see if any matched the dead woman's description. Detectives were sent from Sydney, but in the meantime, the body was left in the culvert under police guard overnight. That was how the Pajama Girl murder mystery began. The case wouldn't be closed for another decade, and even now, it's argued, the mystery hasn't really been solved. The pyjamas, her manicure, pierced ears, dyed and fashionably cut hair, and those exotic pyjamas led police to theorise that the young woman had been from the city rather than the country. Truth newspaper observed, quote, She must have been a girl of unusual beauty. She had a perfect complexion and had taken great care of her skin. The newspaper speculated that she might have been an actress or a singer. Police took photos of the dead girl's face in the hope they'd help with her identification. At the Albury morgue, officers paraded past her body to see if they knew her, a ritual that would be reenacted for years to come. The pyjama girl was first placed on ice and then in a formalin bath to preserve her. Theories abounded. A young Sydney actress who was thought to possibly be the victim turned up alive and well. There were suggestions the girl might have been killed because she knew who'd murdered a woman in St Kilda back in June. A palm reader came to Sydney police and said he'd done a reading for a girl a few weeks ago whose hand had told him that she was bound for tragedy. Leaving no stone unturned, detectives interviewed this fellow, likely because they thought he might be the murderer rather than have some real second sight. Amid all this theorising, Sydney's The Sun struck a fairly realistic note when it asked, quote, Was the victim a young married woman killed by her husband? If a married woman left home with her husband, there would be no report or check on her disappearance. The post-mortem examination did reveal the dead girl actually had a couple of fillings, and it was hoped that these would lead to her identification. But in the coming months and years, worldwide dental checks led nowhere. On the Wednesday after she'd been found, newspapers were given the grisly post-mortem facial photo. Using this photo as a basis, newspaper illustrators reconstructed her portrait. The dead girl looked like a movie star, and she certainly now had an audience. By Wednesday, 250 people had visited the Sydney morgue to see her body. 400 people had been shown her photo. Two weeks into the investigation, New South Wales Police had followed up on 500 missing girls to no avail. A Waverley man came forward to say he'd known her. He was wrong. So was the Perth couple who said she was a barmaid from a city hotel. A month after that, the police still had nothing, and by then they'd spent £3,000 on the case. The Sun newspaper reported, quote, The communications by radio, cable telegraph, telephone and mail have been colossal, with, quote, no parallel in any previous Australian crime. Yet police were no closer to identifying her or her killer. Three years after the pyjama girl was found, in September 1937, it was finally leaked that she'd been shot through the eye. What followed was a public call for a tabling of all papers relating to the case. 
the police resisted, citing promises of confidentiality to various informants. Besides, they said, there were more than 5,000 files relating to the Pajama Girl murder, and some of those files were more than an inch thick. What police did and didn't know was revealed in a January 1938 inquest. By then, £10,000 had been spent, but only four witnesses could be called. They were Tom Griffith, the government medical officer, and two police officers involved in the case. The inquest heard that thousands of inquiries had been made all over Australia and New Zealand. Thousands of women who failed to vote in the 1934 state and 1937 federal elections had been traced. Some 100 police departments all over the world had also been enlisted for help. And of course, most notoriously, like some gruesome fairy tale, the Pajama Girl's body in its formalin bath had been on public display at the Sydney University Medical School in the hope that someone would recognise her. Concluding the inquest, which found that the Pajama Girl had died from skull and brain injuries inflicted by an unknown person, the coroner said, quote, Notwithstanding a tremendous amount of effort and industry, it seems as if this amazing crime has defied detection and baffled every attempt to solution. That was until the start of March 1944, when a 41-year-old Italian immigrant waiter named Antonio Agostini was arrested in Sydney. Police had had his wife, Linda Agostini, born Linda Platt in England in 1905, on their list of potential pyjama girls. Yet, they'd ruled her out until her dental records were re-examined in 1944. Then, they knew they had a match. Under questioning from Sydney's police commissioner, William McKay, who we heard a lot about in the Forgotten Australia series, Sydney's Red Year, Tony Agostini supposedly confessed that on the 26th of August 1934, Linda had threatened him with a gun in their home in inner-city Melbourne. There'd been a struggle. She'd been shot and died. Tony had panicked and decided to dump her. Trying to move her body, he lost his grip and she fell down some stairs, resulting in those head injuries. As the murder had taken place in Victoria, Tony was extradited to Melbourne in a police vehicle from New South Wales under great secrecy, with a van following containing the body police claimed was his dead wife in her formalin tank. During the trial, Tony Agostini's defence tried to argue that Billy McKay had coerced the confession by getting the accused drunk and promising he'd only be charged with manslaughter and serve a couple of years. In court, Tony did testify that when he was stuck in expressing his thoughts, Billy McKay had helped him out. For his part, Billy McKay denied all of this. The jury also heard from Tony that during his four-year marriage to Linda, she was an unpredictable and violent drunk who'd pulled a gun on him more than once. Of course, she wasn't around to deny this. Given how much time and energy had been put into the investigation over the past decade, what was striking was that Linda's mother in England had actually asked Victorian police to look into her daughter's disappearance back in 1935, but they hadn't followed up beyond a cursory investigation. As Billy McKay had supposedly predicted, Tony Agostini, while tried for murder, was convicted only of manslaughter, and he'd served just four years before being deported to Italy on release in 1948. The Pajama Girl case was a media sensation from the moment the body was discovered on the 1st of September 1934. It was even dramatised in a short film five years later by director Rupert Kathner, who has a strong claim to being Australia's worst filmmaker and whose story we're going to look at in another episode. 
70 years after the Pajama Girl was found, historian Richard Evans published his 2004 book, The Pajama Girl Mystery, A True Story of Murder, Obsession and Lies. In the book, he raised doubts about the identification of the Pajama Girl, saying that Linda Agostini had very different physical characteristics, from eye colour to bus size. Richard Evans' argument was that Linda Agostini had been killed by her husband, but she wasn't the Pajama Girl. Instead, the dead woman found in the culvert had likely been one of the other 125 missing women that police had been unable to trace in the past decade. The most prominent candidate was Anna Philomena Morgan, whose mother had been claiming that her daughter was the pyjama girl since 1940, even taking legal action to try to have the body released to her. But she'd been denied because authorities concluded there was not sufficient evidence to say that Anna was the pyjama girl. As for Linda Agostini being the pyjama girl, Richard Evans' book contended that police were sick of looking like fools for failing to close the case over a decade. Tony Agostini provided convenient closure to cops who corruptly manufactured his confession. For his part, Tony, despite again confessing at his trial to shooting, dropping and dumping Linda, maintained that the pyjama girl was not his wife. And four years later, when he was released and told he was about to be deported, he stuck to that story, saying, The word hell does not describe what I have been through in the past 16 years. However, I am positive that the body of the pyjama girl is not that of my wife, Linda. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Australia on This Day. Make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Thanks for listening and catch you tomorrow. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.